Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. By the way, that's the prayer of St. Ephraim before reading Holy Scripture. And I taped it to the inside of my Bible. So if you've got a Bible, you might think about uh, looking that up online, or you can email me. I'd be happy to email a copy of it to you. You can tape it to the inside of your Bible. That's a nice practice to get in the habit of reading before you uh, start reading the sacred scriptures. Um, and as I, as I was just thinking, and I guess I'll use this as my introduction since I introduced you three years ago on this same subject, um, that the apostles, as we learned over the last few weeks, as we studied the lives of the 12 apostles here at the Institute, that they became the arms of Jesus Christ. They became first disciples and then apostles, and they were sent out to be the presence of Christ in the life of the world. And we remember that beautiful scene of Peter and John at, this, at, the, at the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem as they see the paralytic. They say, look into our eyes in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up. And they stood up. This is the mission which God has given to all of us as Christians this is the mission which I believe God has given to Dr. O'Donnell to put him in our presence tonight. That just as John the Baptist pointed the way to Christ and John the Evangelist wrote so that we might see and believe, so Dr. O'Donnell is here with us as the presence of Christ in our life, almost as a new John, opening the scriptures to us, uh, unveiling the mystery so that we can see our Lord face to face and walk again with him. So please join me in welcoming back Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. I am delighted to be with you, and I would like to again commend our Reverend Deacon for all the great work he does here. It's a wonderful, wonderful grace for the church, and it is a joy and an honor uh, for me to be here with you. We're supposed to be launching into, in these next two evenings that we're going to be doing together, uh, the Book of Glory. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Is that fine? Okay. Um, but uh, we had just dealt with the Book of Signs, and the Book of Signs basically took you right up to chapter 13. I think in the last conference, we didn't quite get that far. So before I jump into the Book of Glory, which starts in chapter 13, and if you have your Bible... Uh, you should open that when we get to chapter 13 and start going through it in a very systematic way. But uh, it is very important before we do that, John really sets the stage for the book of glory, chapter 13, which really is 
starts with the Last Supper and then goes on to the Passion, Death, and the Resurrection. But in those, preced- those few preceding chapters, in 10, 11, and in 12, he says a number of things in his gospel that really are meant to guide you, to prepare all of us for those great earth-shaking moments of the great Tritum that we're going to be entering into not too long from now. But a couple of things that we should look at, if you open to chapter 10, uh, if you have your Bible, open to chapter 10 of John's Gospel, and we'll find a couple of things that he will mention in 10 and also in 11 and 12 that really are going to prepare us to enter into the book of glory. It is in chapter 10 that John tells us that he is the door of the sheep. If you look at chapter 10, verse 7, Again, therefore, Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And it is in chapter 10 of John's Gospel that he gives you the image of the good shepherd. You know, there are seven great I am statements. Seven times in John's Gospel, seven, the biblical number of completion and fulfillment, where he says, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. All right? I am the bread of life. Seven times he says that, indicating something profound about him. But here he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He says that in chapter 10. Now notice he's preparing you, since he's saying he's the good shepherd, for exactly what he's going to be doing when he gets to Jerusalem. Right? Because when he gets to Jerusalem, what's he going to do? Lay down the life for the sheep. Also, it is very interesting to see the important role in the book of glory that Peter has and his relationship to Jesus. So in order to understand all that image of feeding lambs, feeding sheep, being a shepherd, it is very important to go back to chapter 10 and look at everything that he says in chapter 10 about what's involved in being a shepherd. I know mine, mine know me, they hear my voice. And they follow me. All of these beautiful images. Again, he will also say, if you look at verse 17, very interestingly enough, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, see what it says, that I may take it up again. All of these are foreshadowings, preparation for what's going to happen. The Father loves him, why? Because he lays down his life. The obediential will of Jesus, all throughout John's gospel, I come not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And the Father loves him. That's why whenever Jesus humbles himself, like looking like a sinner in the Jordan waters, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. All right. So it's that act of humility. So again, Jesus will lay down that life, all right, but he's going to take it back up again. And then he goes on after that. You will notice in chapter 10, there's all sorts of division. Who is he? Who are you, really? And that's why you look at verse 24, and and they ask him, How long dost thou keep us in suspense? If thou art the Christ, tell us openly. But, of course, there's none so blind as those who will not see. Jesus answered them in verse 25, I tell you, and you do not believe. And then he goes on to say, the works that I do. Everyone acknowledges works. Even the Jews acknowledge the works. 
even the historian Josephus, writing 30 years after the death of Christ, still says he was the doer of the most extraordinary things. Remember Peter in Acts when he talks about Jesus? You yourself saw what he did. No one denies that they were miracles. The best they can come up with is he works those miracles by cooperating with the devil. All right? Pretty weak argument, which Jesus shatters. So all of these things, and then he goes on, and at the end, notice the powerful statement in verse 30, when he says, I tell you, but you do not believe. All right? I and the Father are one. And he says it explicitly, that union with the Father. First of all, he calls him his Father, but then he claims this unity with the Father. The Jewish reaction, of course, they want to kill him. They want to stone him. And so he says, many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Because the works prove who he is. Nobody can do those works unless God is with him. But they say, not for the good works, but thou being a man, makest thyself God. Right? So they clearly see what he is saying, unlike some modern exegetes. Say, well, that's not what he meant. He meant a moral union or something. The Jews clearly see what he is actually saying. Then when you go on into chapter 11, does anybody remember what is found in chapter 11 of John's Gospel? Lazarus. Okay, you see, we're moving towards the culmination. After he gives this great identity, who is, you go to chapter 11, and chapter 11 involves the raising of Lazarus. And that's when he comes and he reveals to Martha and Mary, he says, another one of the great I am statements, I am the resurrection and the life. All right? He who believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. So again, identify himself as the resurrected one. It's all a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. And do you think that strengthened the apostles' faith when they saw him raise Lazarus of Bethany? Absolutely. And it's very interesting, the same Greek word that Jesus used. It says, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The same word, cried out, is the same word that's going to be used for the crowd All right, on Good Friday. They cry out, but what do they cry out? Crucify him, crucify him. So there's a parallel going on. Jesus cries out, and with his crying out, what does he bring? Life. The mob cries out, and what do they bring? Death. But of course, who has the last word? It's through the death that you get the life. The Christian paradox, all working out here. So you have the great resurrection of Lazarus. So many Jews begin to flock to Jesus after the resurrection of Lazarus that the leaders of the Jews decide, what are they going to do to Lazarus? They want to kill Lazarus, not just Jesus. They want to kill Lazarus. I mean, they're really working in union here uh, in a very, very dark way and opposing what is being communicated here. Then when you go quickly to chapter 12, how does chapter 12 start? Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, all right? So we're now moving into the final days of a final week. And what a great week it was. What happens in chapter 12, all right? Jesus gets that special anointing, right? With oil from Mary, all right? And that anointing is preparation for his what? His burial. See, everything in these three chapters is getting you ready for the great events of the Triduum, 
the passion, the death, and the resurrection. So we have the anointing, the preparation for the burial. And only one person really objects to that anointing. Because the whole place is filled with this perfume. Who's the objector? It is Judas. And John, who's Mr. Charity and Mr. Love, what does he say? He was a thief and he took money from the purse. All right. But it shows you right there, it's another foreshadowing. Because none of the other apostles are played, but Judas is the one who complains. Is Judas with the Lord? No. So that's even a foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the end as well. You see how this all is prepared? It's a way of preparing all of us to enter more deeply into the mystery. As we go on here, they want to kill Lazarus. Then you have the glorious entry on Palm Sunday where they proclaim him as the Messiah. And to the point where in your 1219, the Pharisees begin to cry, See, we avail nothing. The whole world is going after him. But of course, that's what's eventually going to happen, right? The whole world's going to go after him. And then there's a special group that come up to Philip and say, we want to see Jesus. And who's that group? They're the Gentiles, right? So it foreshadows his mission beyond just Israel. The mission Argentis to everybody is going to be called into the kingdom. And it's right after that, in chapter 12, verse 32, that he again says something very important. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all things to myself. So as we go closer and closer, everything focuses more and more intensely on the person of Jesus, who he is, and what he's going to do. It's been really, in a certain way, it's really true. The synoptics talk about the kingdom. John and his gospel, since all that was already laid out in the synoptics, he talks about the king. He wants to focus on the person of Jesus. And that's why it is so deep and so profound. So let's go on here to chapter 13. Once we enter chapter 13, his public ministry is over and we enter what theologians have called the book of glory. So from chapter 13 all the way to the end, you do have an epilogue, that's true. It's all about the glorification of Jesus. Now what we want to do here, what I'd like to do with you, this is so beautiful and we are in Lent, we're moving ever closer to Holy Week. Once we get in chapter 13, I would like to go line by line with you. Is that okay? Do you mind? It's just, we should just pray it together, all right, and sort of go through it. Uh, because what's really going on here, when you look at the Last Supper accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very, very beautiful, but there's nothing, absolutely nothing, like John's account. And why is that? Where was John at the Last Supper? He was the one who was reclining on the heart of Jesus, reclining on the bosom of Jesus. And there's a great quote from a Dominican named John Towler, one of the Rhineland mystics, which I'd like to read to you tonight just to share as we enter into this deeper part of Lent and more deeply into the mystery. Listen to what John Towler, the great mystic from the 15th century, he was a great German, went all over the Rhineland area preaching and teaching nuns and lay people about Christ. This is what he says. If thou will rest with St. John, on the lovely heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thou must devote thyself to the lovely example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Upon that thou must diligently meditate. In him thou must see his gentleness and humility and the deep burning love which he bore towards his friends and his enemies. 
his obedience and the submission which he showed on every occasion when his father called him. Add to this the profound pity with which he embraced all of mankind and his blessed poverty. So what's he doing? He's inviting us to recline on the bosom of Jesus. So as we enter into the mystery of the Last Supper, let's do that. And we need to do that for a number of reasons. You know, we're always sort of fascinated as human beings with what people say when they're facing death. Isn't that true? Like, what's the last words? Like when we take groups to Ireland, we always try to make it to Kilmainham Jail, where the guys who fought in the 1916 uprising, there's a book called Last Words. And the deep faith and the deep Catholic identity of those men, it's so moving as they write to their wives and their children explaining why they did what they did. There's a certain poignancy to all of those things. So when we're really dealing with someone uh, at the moment of his death, Jesus knows this is it. This is the Last Supper. And when you are facing death and you know you're going to die, that is the time when you open your heart and you say what is most deep in you. Does that make sense? I mean, that's why you want to reconcile. There's a great meditation they often say, like if you're on a retreat, on the last day of the retreat, they'll say, go in your room, lock it, and then sit there for an hour. It's a good thing to do. Maybe do it in Holy Week. And then sit there for an hour and imagine that you know that you have only 12 hours to live, that you will, God has revealed, you're going to die in 12 hours. Sit there for an hour, one hour and imagine what would you do if you knew you had only 12 hours left to live. And then you know what you do? You do it. You do that whatever that might be. It might be a very good discipline to do. So he knows. And so what is deepest, most intimate in his heart, John is reclining on his bosom. Let's go there. Let's be with John because John hears everything. He writes down those words. He stores them. And that's why we get this type of detail that we don't get from any other evangelist because why? He's reclining on the heart of Jesus at this moment. And he's taking it all in. And he communicates in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. That's all devoted to the Last Supper, the Last Discourse that he gives. He's all, he's communicating to us words that will never die. And words, as we're going to see, that are actually going to even wake the dead from their sleep and help them to rise again. So that having been said, let's go step by step with me. If you have your Bible, please open and follow along with me. Chapter 13, verse 1, accompanying John, reclining there. Before the feast of Passover, Jesus knowing that the hour had come for him to pass out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, love them to the end. I mean, we have to see the pathos of everything here. The hour in John's gospel is always his passion, all right? That's why way back at Cana, before he started his public ministry, you know, my hour has not yet come. But once he starts the public ministry, he's on the road to the hour. The hour is now here. But notice John is emphasizing to us so that we get that he knew it. He knew it. They probably didn't know it at the time that this was going to be the Last Supper, but he knew it. So John is sharing that insight of the heart of the God-man, knowing that his hour had come for him to pass out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. How does he show his love? By opening his heart to them now. 
This is where he's going to give the great discourse. And since all the apostles, all the disciples that they're listening to that, we all share in that because we all share in that same faith. And during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, girded himself. All right? The towel is always the symbol of the servant. It is the symbol of the slave. Laying aside his garments, almost like setting aside his glory, his divinity. He takes the towel. Because remember, the Son of Man came right, to serve, not to be served. And he takes the towel. Now, it is interesting to note that right before that, during the supper, the devil already went into Judas. But notice the affection, the love. Right after that, he says he takes his, puts his garment aside, lays his glory, takes the servant's towel, and he begins to wash the feet. Does he wash the feet of Judas? Yes, he does. He washes Judas's feet. Absolutely. We're going to see later that you can tell by the way the dialogue goes. Not only did he wash Judas's feet, he gave Judas the position of honor at the table. We'll talk about that. And he also did something else. He gave him food, gave him bread. We'll have to talk about all this as we get to this. But the whole idea, it's showing this incredible love, generosity, humility, and abasement. And so... He rises from the supper, lays aside the garments, in a sense, laying aside his glory divinity, takes the towel. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples and to dry them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, again, a couple things. We know this, and we get so kind of used to this, but we need to step back and realize what's going on here. This is such a humbling act, the washing of the feet, that even Jewish slaves were not required to wash feet. If you'd been out, you came in, there was a water basin, you would wash your feet. This was not required of Jewish slaves. I mean, this is an amazing thing, an amazing thing that he's doing. And you can see why it would have, the impact would have been overwhelming. All right? So we go on, and it helps explain Peter now. He came then to Simon Peter. Now notice also that John always emphasizes Peter. That's not an accident, all right? Gives his full name to make sure you understand who he's talking about. He came then to Simon Peter. Maybe Peter was the last one. He's probably thinking, I'm not going to let him do this. I'll wait and say my, I'll have, you know, he's so sanguine. You have to love Peter, all right? So, and Peter said to him, now notice he came, notice the words, he came then to Simon Peter, Simon, his his regular name, his Jewish name, and then the name that Jesus gave him. He came to Simon Rock, and the rock, Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Why does he say that to Peter? What's Peter going to know hereafter? And why does he say that to Peter and not to everybody else? Because what's Peter going to be? He's going to be his vicar. He's going to be the shepherd. You don't understand it now, but you will. Because the primary function from Pope 
to bishop, to priest, on down to the way in which we interact with one another is to be of service to each other. What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know later. Peter said to him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Now again, you can kind of appreciate Peter trying to be humble and saying, I'm not worthy of this. But it is interesting to note that Jesus said to him, if I do not wash thee, thou shalt have no part of me. Now notice Peter's so sanguine, you know, after that. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash me, wash everything. Now it's interesting to note that the fathers of the church reading this passage observed that the word for wash is the same word in the Greek that's used for baptism. So what's going on here is also a symbol of baptism. They are being bathed, they're being washed. So once you're washed you don't need to be washed again, right? Once you're baptized, you're not baptized again. That's why if you go to Easter Vigil, if you've already been baptized, but you're just coming into full communion with the Catholic Church, you don't get rebaptized. You simply make a profession of faith, showing that you believe. Because the church owns baptism. The church controls baptism. And if you have been baptized, you're a part of the church, unless you separate yourself from the church. All right? So Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash, and he is clean all over. And you are clean, but not all. Now again, it's so important to show that he knows what's going on. He is in command. For he knew who it was that would betray him. This is why he said, You are not all clean. So again, reference to Judas. Even though it's the symbol of baptism, we can learn certain things. Are there people who will be baptized who aren't going to be with the program? Are there people who are going to be baptized, who are going to betray our Lord, who are going to be a source of scandal? Yes. If that happened to Jesus' 12, should we be shocked that it happens to us? <laughs> in today, that there are scandals, all right? Well, it's always good to be shocked. But I mean, in a certain sense, it happened even with the 12. Even with the 12. Now, after he had washed their feet and put on his garments, when he had reclined again, he said to them, of course, the masterful teacher, do you know what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If, therefore, I, the Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. For I have given you an example, that as I have done to you, so you also should do. Now, he's showing the example of service, because eventually he's going to give them the new commandment, the great commandment, right? to love one another as I have loved you. And the best way to show love is to be of service. All right? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually do it. All right? And so he goes on. Amen, amen, I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed shall you be if you do them. I speak, I do not speak of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. I tell you now that before it comes to pass, that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Amen, amen, I say to you, he who, believe, he who receives anyone I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, many have commented, that it is interesting in John's Gospel, at the Last Supper, you do not have the words of institution, like you do in the synoptics. 
Nowhere at the Last Supper he said, this is my body, this is my blood. But if you want to define the moment, and he knows that most Christians know that it was already in the other Gospels, if you want to find a reference where that might have taken place, it would have been right here. For example, in verse 17 where he says, if you know these things, blessed shall you be if you do them. That expression, do them, do this, in remembrance of me, it sort of parallels what you have in Luke. Also, the fact that he quotes the scripture, he who eats bread with me, indicates that the bread was there. He's quoting the psalm. And then right after that, he talks about receiving me. All right, All of that within the context would sort of point to this as being the moment when the Eucharist had been shared. All right. Now, what's very disturbing in this, in this particular passion, he's quoting uh, the psalm, or Psalm 40, about raising the heel. Now, notice also there's another heel in Genesis, right? Someone's going to strike at the heel, all right? So you have this sort of conflict because the devil's already going after Judas. But in this passage, he quotes the psalm, He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. That's like the worst thing you could do. The sharing of a meal was the way of expressing deepest bonds of friendship. All right? So actually, the fact that Judas is there sharing bread, and we're going to find out that Jesus himself is going to reach out in an affectionate way to give him something. All right? But to raise the heel implies, in the Hebrew of the psalm, implies like a violent striking somebody. So in other words, Jesus is really being wounded by this. And yet what you notice, there is no bitterness. There is only sorrow for one who is being lost. And that's why you continue to have this effort to reach out. Even in the garden, even in the garden, when he comes with everybody, friend, why are you here? Even then, he's reaching out to him. Right? Amazing, the depth of love. And also the humility of our Lord's heart that is revealed in this. So we go on to 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Sort of the way he was when he went into the garden, he began to be troubled in spirit and to sigh. So you already have sort of a foretaste here. And he says, Amen, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Right? Why is he troubled in spirit? Because someone that he has been living, that he called, that he has been living with for three years, who has seen all of the miracles, heard all of his teaching, all right, is going to be betraying. And the first information we get about a possible betrayal is way back. I told you about this in the first, <laughs> the first poem, John six. John six is where you first hear about the betrayal of Judas when our Lord announces the Eucharist. And back in John 6, he says, I have not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil. All right? So, <laughs> Father Judas is going to remain in the apostolic college for all of this time until this evening when there will be the final rupture with him. So, the disciples, of course, in the presence of our Lord, look at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking. You know, when he says that one of you is going to betray me, it reveals something about the disciples and their own humility. Is any of us sure that we wouldn't betray him? You know? So the fact that every one of who is he talking about? All right? And it's interesting if you go back to Luke where you actually have the questions go on, disciple after disciple says, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? 
And there's one disciple who says, is it I, Master? He doesn't say Lord, because you can only say Jesus is Lord in the Holy Spirit. And he does not have the Holy Spirit. He has another spirit at this time. So that's what's going on. Now we go on here. Now one of his disciples, he whom Jesus loved, and you all know who that is, all right, was reclining at Jesus' bosom. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him and said to him, Who is it of whom he speaks? Notice Peter's always the leader. Get to the bottom of it. What's going on here? I want to know. All right. He therefore, leaning back upon the bosom of Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he for whom I shall dip the bread and give it to him. Another act of great courtesy, an act of friendship, breaking the bread, dipping it, and then giving it was a sign of affection and friendship. And when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the morsel, Satan entered into him. So it starts when he announces the Eucharist, all right, back in John 6, that he's the bread of life. And now Satan enter his, enters into him, and there's a total rejection. And I'm sure since he did not like the idea of a suffering Messiah or someone who's going to give his flesh for the life of the world, I'm sure that Jesus putting on a towel and then washing his feet, probably like, oh, this is not the kingdom that he wanted. He did not want a crucified Savior, all right? And that's why he's in league with the devil. That's why if you go back to all of the temptations in the desert, every temptation in the desert at the beginning of Lent were temptations from the cross. Be a bread king. Throw yourself off the top of the temple. Come in power and glory, all these kingdoms. I will give you all anything but the cross. That's why when he announces his suffering and his death, and Peter comes up and says, Oh, come on, Lord, you don't have to do that. What's he say? Get behind me, Satan. I lead you. You don't lead me. Get behind me, Satan. Because what's he pulling him away from? The cross. The devil in his pride cannot stand the abasement of God. All right? So that's what's going on. All of this is going on here. Satan enters into him. So remember at Jewish suppers, at the Last Supper, the table traditionally would have been like a U-shape. Jesus, as the central figure, would have been sitting there, but what you do is you eat sitting. So you sit and you recline on your left elbow with your legs tucked behind you. You're on the ground, sitting that way, reclining on your left elbow. That leaves the right hand free to take the food. Does that make sense to everybody? So John is sitting on Jesus' right so he's at Jesus' right hand. That's why he can lean onto the Lord's bosom. Does that make sense? And so for our Lord to be able to dip in hand, that would put Judas right at the left side. And in Hebrew culture back at that time, if you're at a banquet and you were put on the left side, that was the position of honor for a guest. So even there, he's giving Judas this special position. All right? That's why Peter's not that close. Find out who it is. You know, ask him. So you have this beautiful, beautiful image at this intimate time, and yet you have this dark shadow. But none of those at table understood why he said this to him. What you do, do quickly. All right? For some thought, because Judas held the purse, Jesus had sent him to buy things for the feast, etc. But when, therefore, he had received the morsel, he went out quickly. Now it was night. The sun has set. It is night. Why is it night? The hour of darkness. 
who is Christ. Christ is the light of the world. Remember, he just cleared the blind man. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Judas leaves the presence of the Lord, and what is it? It's night. It's darkness. It's the hour of his passion. It's the hour of Satan. When, therefore, he had gone out, Jesus said, okay, the son of perdition is gone. He has made his choice. He has exercised his free will not to cooperate with the incredible graces that have been given to him. He rejects that, which is very sobering for us. But now he just has the eleven all of whom are faithful and with him. So what does he say? Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. This is why it's called the Book of Glory. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. This is the Book of Glory. And God's going to glorify him now. But why is he glorifying him? He's glorifying by the incredible humility of the cross, by the passion, by the degradation. There are three, there's a three-step ladder of glorification in John's gospel. Three times when Jesus is lifted up to glory. The first is the cross, right? Remember when he says, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all things to myself. You all remember that, right? Remember way back in the early part of the gospel where he said, just as Moses lifted the serpent up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up? So he looks like a criminal. He looks evil, right? But there's no poison in that serpent of bronze. There's no poison of sin in him. But if you look at him with faith and you see what's going on, just like the Jews of old, you'll be healed of snakebite, right? You'll be healed of the striking of the serpent, right? So he's lifted up on the cross, He's going to be lifted up a second time on Easter Sunday, right, with the resurrection. And then the final lifting up is the ascension into heaven. So it's a three-rung glory. But contrary to what we normally think is the cross is sort of an abasement, Jesus says this is his glorification. Now he is glorified. He'll be glorified immediately. So the, 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 the incredible humility, the willingness to follow the, the Father's plan that's why St. Paul, when he starts writing in Philippians, he said he accepted death, even death on a cross. It's unacceptable. We couldn't even believe that someone could do this. But this is what God does to show the depth of his love and his mercy. So notice now, at the Last Supper, the incredible affection as he continues to open his heart to the eleven now. Because he knows it's all in process, it's all happening, it's going forward. What does he do? What does he say? Little children... Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So to you also I say now, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, that as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's it, the new commandment. That's why mandatum, all right? It's Maori to Thursday, all right? Because the new commandment is given to love, which is something that is going to characterize all of Jesus' followers. He doesn't say just love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. So looking back on the three years together, the call... All right, all of the teaching, all of the dinners, all of the camping out, all of the things, the exorcisms, the cures, everything. Love as I have loved you. Everything that I've given, you do the same thing. Love the way that I love. And that's why Tertullian says the gospel spread so rapidly among the pagans because they could not believe. They looked and they said, see how the Christians love one another. 
before they almost even recognize each other. They're embracing each other. There is this incredible love that characterizes us and has to characterize us. And that's why I think Pope Francis is right on when he's pushing some of these things, you know, where the media is always trying to reduce Christianity if it's nothing but no to homosexuality and, you know, no to abortion and things. Those are all important issues. We have to talk about them absolutely. And Pope Francis knows that. But we can't play the press game, all right? This is a religion of love, and those things are horrible for us because we have encountered and we know Jesus, and we want to love the way he loved. That's why we don't do those things. That's the motive for us. And Pope Benedict XVI got that. That's why in his great teaching office as Pope, what was his first encyclical? First encyclical he wrote. Does anyone remember? Deus caritas est, God is love. Now, you think a cardinal who for years was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, his first encyclical would have been on faith. But it wasn't on faith. First encyclical was on love. Second encyclical was on hope. And his last encyclical was on faith. All right? Why? It seems that because if we are going to be credible witnesses, if we are going to be new evangelists, we have to live love. It is the love and showing the love for one another and for our brothers and sisters in Christ that's going to make people be attracted to us to our parishes, to the events that we do, to Catholic reach out, when they see that love, they're going to want to know, why do you do that? And then they're going to learn, because we have a hope. <laughs> we have a hope. Everything's not just about this life. There's a hope, and we are inspired by faith. So it seems that's the way we need it. We show the love, which reveals the hope, and then manifest the faith. That's the way it goes. Because right now, if you just sort of preach faith, 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 they're not going to get it, get it, get it, because there's all sorts of barriers to that. But everyone can see love, right? That's why people love St. Francis. That's why when you talk about Mother Teresa of Calcutta, even the world got that, because this was like unconditional love, all right? One of my favorite stories about a nun, American businessman went to see Teresa, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, and one of her nuns had picked up this leper, and the guy the smell was just horrible. She was trying to wash all of the wounds. And the American businessman, you're kind of awkward. You're there at Calcutta first time, don't know what to say. And he looks and says, I wouldn't do that for a million bucks. And the nun cleaning the wound just looks up and smiles and said, oh, I wouldn't either. And kept doing it. <laughs> but that's part of, you know, you know, that love, that love that needs to be there. So again, what's deepest in his heart? That you love each other with that fraternal love the way I have loved you. Simon Peter, again, the spokesman, notice all the time, when it, be the greatest thing, just every time Peter is mentioned, underline him, you find he's always in a leadership role. Simon Rock said to him, Lord, where art thou going? Jesus answered, where I am going, thou cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow later. See what he's always saying to Peter, you know? You don't get it now, but you will get it later because you're going to be washing feet for the rest of your life. <laughs> Fishing for men, that's what you do, all right? But then also where he's going, you're not going to be able to, but you're going to get it later because the same thing's going to happen because he's going to be the good shepherd, right? And what does the good shepherd do in John 10? Lays down his life for his sheep. Quo vadis domine? My people in Rome have need of thee. If you desert my people of Rome, I myself will go to be crucified a second time. That's the story of the Quo Vadis incident that took place just outside the city of Rome. And Peter goes back and then is crucified like our Lord. All right. So 
Why can I not follow thee now? He is so sanguine. I just love Peter because he's, he's such the up and down guy. Why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thee. Now you have to admire Peter. He's a good guy. As a swordsman, he reveals himself to be a great fisherman. <laughs> right? Because yeah, he has, but you still, even though we kind of make fun of teeth, but you have to admire, he took the sword out. He was going to fight for him. He, well, he was going to die for him. And then when all is we told, put away thy sword, he puts it down, and then he gets spooked, and then he runs. But he still follows from a distance, right? And John gets him in. We'll talk about that next week when we get into the passion narrative. But all of these things, so important here. So, Jesus answered, Will thou lay down thy life for me? Amen, amen, I say to thee, the cock will not crow before thou dost deny me thrice. Three times. Now, you can imagine what the rest of the apostles must think about that. All right? But for Peter to hear that. All right? But again, it shows you who knows what's going on. Who's in control of everything? Who is laying down his life that he may pick it up again? It's Christ. That's why he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and I pick it up again. And that's why when it comes time for him to expire, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gives over the spirit, all right? Because he is in control, all right? So we go on. Now, he's just said this. You can imagine people would be really kind of disturbed by this, right? Wouldn't you be disturbed if you heard Simon the Rock, the head guy's going to die him three times? What's Andrew thinking? My brother's going to do that? What am I going to do? What's Philip doing? What's Thomas saying? What's everyone doing? And that's why in 14 you get all these apostles start asking questions. Guys, you don't hear too much about in the rest of the gospel, but they all start popping up asking questions. But Jesus knows when we get to chapter 14, he needs to encourage them. He needs to strengthen them. So what does he say right at the beginning of 14? Let not your heart be troubled. All right. Everything I said is going to come to But let, your not, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. Were it not so, I should have told you, because I go to prepare a place for you. And if, you go and pre- and if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you also may be, and where I go you know, and the way you know. So Thomas, the apostle, who just a few chapters earlier when Jesus says, I'm going back to Jerusalem, Thomas says, let us go that we can die with him. Everyone thinks of Thomas, the doubting Thomas. I know he gets the bad rap. Remember, Thomas says, let us go with him that we may die with him. He's with him. He's a strong man. All right. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where thou art going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, another one of the great I am's, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So he's the way. Why is he the way? He is our unique mediator. There is no one else, no other name given to us by which we are saved. Not Buddha, not Krishna, not Muhammad, not anybody but Jesus Christ. He is also the truth because he is the Logos. He is the divine word who comes and brings the truth, which is his person. And he is the life because he gives us supernatural life, grace for our souls. And so he is the way. And it is so beautiful that he says he's the way. It's just like, you know, like, where are you going? How are we going to get there? Notice Jesus says he's going to come back. It's like, you know, 
If you ever go to Ireland, they're so funny when you ask for directions to any place. You know, you say, how do I get to Ballina Murphy or something like that? And they say, well, you see that road over there? You don't want to take that. <laughs> you know, there's some of that. But then, you, you know, you go to the corner and you'll see five sheep. You make a right where the five sheep are, all right? And then you go about 10 paces and you make a left here where there's an old ruin and then you make a right, left, and a right. And then you're kind of like, ugh. You know, what you... That's the difference between someone giving you directions like that or someone will say, I will take you. I'll go with you. I'll take you. So what he's saying, I'm preparing the mansion, but I'm going to come back. I will take you. I am the way. So that's the consolation that he gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled because everything's happening according to a divine plan here. Even Judas, even Peter's denial, all of that's something. And where I'm going, I'm going to come back. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he goes on. If you had known me, you would also have known my father. And henceforth, you do know him. You have seen him. Wow. So we get another apostle asked the question. So we had Thomas. Now we get Philip. All right. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. I mean, as you think about Moses, where Moses said, let me see your face. Remember that? But then God says, no man sees my face and lives. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will walk and you can look at my backside and behold my glory, but my face no man sees. Because the time of revelation was not then. But that time is now. That time is now. Jesus said to him, have I been so long a time with you and you have not known me? Philip, he who sees me sees also the Father. So the, faith of Christ, the face of Christ is the face of the Father. I'll share one little story with you. Uh, when I was in Annecy with my wife, we went to Pere Le Monial and we went to Annecy to pay our respects to Francis de Sales. That's where he's buried. He, along with St. Jane, Francis de Chantel, are buried in this beautiful, beautiful Gothic church. And uh, when you go in there, they have this beautiful image of Christ crucified, but they also have, you know, the Father and the Holy Spirit there. And I, for a long time, when I would ever pray the chaplet of divine mercy, I have to go, kind of give you a little confession there. I always wanted to say, for the sake of your sorrowful passion, have mercy. Because I like talking to Jesus, you know. And instead of, for the sake of his sorrow, and, and because the divine mercy chaplet is addressed to the Father. But what I saw there was so absolutely beautiful. This artist had this beautiful Christ crucified. And his face was so beautiful. It was so sorrowful and yet serene. And right above him was the Father. And you know what the Father looked like? Exactly like the Son. The Father had the same face, that same expression. And then for the first time in my sort of dullness, it really hit me. What would it mean if you were a father and you sent your only son to die on the cross. What would that do to you watching your son die? Remember, the father was not indifferent to that. And so you really got the sense. So the, he who sees me, Christ reveals the merciful love of the father. He reveals the father's face. And so that's why he's saying the father and I are one. He who sees me sees the Father. Dost thou not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I speak not on my own authority, but the Father dwelling in me. It is he who does the works. Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes in me... The works that I do, he also shall do, and greater than these shall he do, because I am going to the Father. 
In other words, someone who believes in him. Jesus, in other words, in his earthly ministry and in his earthly life was limited pretty much to the Holy Land, right? And he met with that group in that particular cultural milieu. Once he goes to the Father, everything changes. He becomes the great intercessor. And where are his disciples going to go? Everywhere, all over the world, to Persia, to Rome, to Spain, to Greece, and far more converts will be made. But they're doing that through their attachment to Christ and through the power of Christ. So again, would that be words of encouragement? Greater works than these you will do. All right? So again, building that confidence, giving them that sense of encouragement. So then he goes on. I'm going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Because up to that time, they're praying to the Father. They're praying to God. Now he says, because he's on the threshold of eternity. This is his last time with them. All right? He's being crucified tomorrow. All right? He's ready to go to heaven, so he's on the threshold of eternity. Ask anything in my name, and I'll do it for you. But you have to ask in his name, so that's why you have to be sure that what you're asking for, you can ask for in his name, right? That it's something worthy of him. So he's going to the Father, so it's time when you can ask him. So what does he go on? Then what does he say? If you love me, more teaching about love, Love as he is loved. If you love me, keep my commandments. You can't just say, oh, I love, I love, I love, and then you don't do anything. It's faith and works. It's words and deeds. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to dwell with you forever. Who's the advocate? The Holy Spirit. But notice he says, and he will give you another advocate, because they already have an advocate. Who's their advocate? Jesus himself, all right? Jesus himself is the advocate. He is the one defending them as a little flock. He is the one who has been with them all three years. He's the one who was with them now at the Last Supper. But now there's going to be another advocate, third person of the Trinity, who will dwell with them forever. So in 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you shall know him because he will dwell with you and be in you. So God's presence in a new way. So he goes on. And again, notice the encouragement, the consolation. I will not leave you orphans. Do they have a father? Yeah. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world no longer sees me. But you see me for I live and you shall live, because they're going to have this divine life that he's going to talk about in the next chapter. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. But he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So, we're not going to be orphans. Christ will still be present. He will still be with us. Now we get Jude. Unfortunately, he's called Judas here, but Judas, not the Iscariot, but Jude said to him, so this is the third apostle, all right? We've had Thomas ask, we've had Philip. Now the third question, this time from Jude. Lord, how is it that thou art to manifest thyself to us and not to the world? Because they all wanted Israel restored. They wanted the big, come with the big kingdom. And remember just before the ascension, he said, now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It's not for you to know the time, all right? But they really want that. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone love me, he will keep my word. 
and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode in him through the power of the Spirit. So he's talking about the divine indwelling, this new life, this new presence, this new mode of existence. In some ways, we feel like, oh, it was so great to be, just if you could have seen Jesus with your eyes and heard his voice, and all of that sounds so great. But for the apostles, we're going to find they're going to get something even greater than that because why? What was external now will be eventually become internal. He'll be inside. That's why when he, at the ascension, when he's taken up into heaven, are they sad? They leave rejoicing because they get it because and they go back and they spend those nine days in prayer waiting for the promised paraclete because they know they are going to be filled with him in a way in which they've never experienced him before because the spirit of truth is going to be given to them. All right. So he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you have heard is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Notice the humility and the obedience. He goes on. These things I have spoken to you while yet dwelling with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now remember, the name is the person. In my person. All right, because he proceeds from Father and Son. He will teach you all things and bring to your mind whatever I have said to you. Now, again, we're still agitated. Peter's going to deny three times that he even knew him. All, Judas has gone out. It's night. What does he say? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled or be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I go away and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would indeed rejoice that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. There he's speaking again in his humanity, because what's going to happen to his humanity? It's going to be ascended into heaven in full glory, in the presence of the Father. And he's standing before his Father, as we know from Hebrews all the time, showing him his wounds and his hands and his feet, showing his wounds and his heart. See how I love men. Forgive them, Father. Forgive them. All right? Show thy mercy. Unleash thy mercy on humanity. It's the only reason we're all still here. It's because of the merciful love of Christ and the Father. So he says, and now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. I will no longer speak much with you for the prince of the world is coming and in me he has nothing. Contrasted to Judas. In me he has nothing. But he comes that the world may know that I love the Father and I do as the Father has commanded me. Arise, let us go from here. All right. Again, the whole idea of Satan is coming, it's the hour of darkness, but he has no part in me, and he only functions as a servant. He can only do what God wants. And so everything that the devil is going to do where he thinks he wins, it's going to show the world that he loves the Father, and he does the Father's will, and he does the Messiah. He is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. Make sense? Then we're done for the evening. Let's, shall we end with a prayer? name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me not, O Lord, be puffed up with worldly wisdom which passes away, but grant me that love which never abates, that I may not seek to know anything among men but Jesus and Him crucified. I pray thee, loving Jesus, as thou hast graciously given us to drink and with delight the words of thy wisdom, so that would one day allow us to attain to thee the fountain of all wisdom, and there to appear forever before thy face. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank Th- you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell.
Thank you very much for a wonderful, wonderful presentation. Uh, okay, we're going to take a three minutes, three minute break. Was Judas's only his big problem was he didn't want Jesus to die in order to have that kind of love. In other words, he, he wanted him to have that love without that dying. Yeah, I don't think it was just greed or anything like that. It does seem, if you look at all of the synoptics and also the Johannine tradition, that there seems to be a real contempt for the cross. He does not want the cross. And so many times, one of you has a devil. It's associated with the devil. The demon hates the cross, hates the crucifixion. Uh, if speculative theologians are right, the reason why Lucifer originally fell, because they refused, according to his speculation, to worship and adore or follow a god who would debase himself by assuming a nature so inferior to his own. And so now it's sort of like the, the Christian paradox, the triumph over the devil is by an even more horrific abasement where you take all of the sin and, the, and undergo the most excruciating type of suffering in that body and then have that body rise glorified as an object elevated even above the angels because God has taken that unto himself. It's an amazing thing, but it seems that's why Judas probably wanted the triumphant Messiah who's going to come in glory. Let's sit on the 12 thrones right now, and I want it here and now. And that was not what the plan was. And so it seems that when Jesus announces the Eucharist and then actually institutes the Eucharist, that's when you have the final word. He's already drifted far away, but the final repudiation, he goes out, and that's why it's night. He enters into darkness. Why is the devil referred to as the prince of this world? That's, a re that's an excellent question and something I was going to deal with next week, but maybe I should deal with it now. Um, when we talk about the world, it's very, very important as Catholics that we make it some distinctions. In sacred scripture, there are three senses in which the word world is used. And it makes a big difference, even in terms of reading church documents and things that you understand what that is. The first sense of the world is the world of creation. You know, when God made everything, he looked out and says, and it was very good. Creation is good. The things in nature are good. All right. There's a second way in which the world speaks of the society of men, human beings, men and women. God so loved the world that he sent his own son. All right. Good. But there's a third sense, which I didn't get to, but maybe next week I'll get to, where Jesus says, I pray not for the world. All right, he's not talking about creation. He's not talking about men and women. He's talking about what we spiritual writers call the spiritus mundi, the spirit of the world. And the devil is the prince of this world in the sense that the mundane spirit, which dominates uh, Hollywood, <laughs> uh, People magazine, and can dominate us too, is under his control. It's the spirit of the world. All of the false maxims, everything that opposes the teaching of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. But when you find a worldly spirit that exalts power, violence, um, lust, you know, and justifies these as if these are virtuous things, all of the false maxims of the world, you know, life is to enjoy, life is to be, you know, and all these type of things that go totally against the spirit of the gospel, that's the spiritus mundi, that's the spirit of the world, which sort of, when people are trying to live a good life, they're mocked, you know, they're ridiculed, they're made fun of. That's that spirit of the world. The devil has lordship over that. Does that 
Makes sense? So in that sense, he is the prince of this world. So when he shows that temptation, all these kingdoms and all the power and all the glory, they're mine. Yeah, because he dominates those. That's not the spirit of the gospel. All right, does that make sense? It's a great question. Um, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about what the word paraclete means? Yes, thank you very much. Translated in so many different ways. Yeah. Paraclete generally refers to, and most commentators would view it this way, as like a counselor. He is like an attorney. The word paraclete means comforter, but in the sense of someone who strengthens you, someone who in a trial comes and gives testimony on your behalf in a way that protects you and strengthens you. That's what paraclete means in the strict Greek. So it's in that sense of a counselor, a comforter, someone who will come and will rise to your defense and strengthen you by defending you. Does that, does that help? So particularly against our three spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are our three principal spiritual enemies. So the parakletos, the counselor, the one who comes to give counsel, to give strength, is the one who appears in court. Because like the devil, Satan means the adversary. He's the one who is accusing us all the time, trying to tempt us and to accuse us. The spirit comes and defends us and gives testimony to Jesus and our love of Jesus and pushes back against the accuser, Satan, the adversary. Dr. O'Donnell, um, uh, Harold writing in from Maryland asks, uh, when St. John mentions that Satan enters Judas when he receives the morsel, can it be understood as a kind of reversal of receiving Jesus and having him enter into us in the Eucharist? Yes, I think that's a great insight. Um, because actually, the, it says after receiving the morsel, you could certainly see there a parallel to the Eucharist. It's disputed, was Judas there for the Eucharist? We don't know. I mean, different people say yes, or he went out before, went out after. It's not really clear from any of the texts. But to see it as sort of an antithetical, um, but even though Christ is reaching out in friendship and offering him the morsel, I don't think that was the Eucharist, but it, in a sense of reaching out in friendship, but instead of receiving Jesus which he could have done, all right, he then, Satan enters and he chooses to, distorts his will and receives and selects Satan. So I think that is a deep insight. That's a good insight. I remember reading in Scott Hahn, one of Scott Hahn's books. It's true. Uh, (laughs) 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 But but he talked about um, the sin of Adam and Eve and that, you know, all of creation is good and it's beautiful, Mm -hmm. um, but it's taking a lesser good and elevating it instead of the higher good, which is Christ. Yeah. And is that where the devil has that control? That we start longing, looking for and elevating the something higher, like just yeah. friendship and making friendship as good as it is. You know? And so we do things out of friendship that, you know, like uh, St. Augustine says with the stealing of the pears, mm-hmm. that he did it. Mm-hmm. Not because he was hungry, but because his friends were doing it. So that's yeah. why they stole the pears from, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. that's the sin and that's, no, that's the good, elevation. Sure, that's a good insight. It's a disordering of our ends. We should have our ends properly ordered. And the highest good is God. 
There shall be no false gods. And in order to be attached to God in the proper way, there's certain virtues, certain actions that we are called to perform, all right? And Jesus teaches all of those most beautifully in the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about what are the dispositions needed to get into the kingdom. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's merciful, those who sorrow, etc., etc., all of those things are antithetical to the spirit of the world. The world would never say, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. No, it's the people who are powerful, the people who are on top, the people who are beautiful. All the things that sort of take away or would hide from what really is important, like looking into the heart, looking into the soul of the person. And so the world sort of falls down and, in, in a certain sense, adores, you know, American Idol, well-named, all right? But this whole idea of coming in and just bowing down, not that you don't respect, there are good things out there, but most time, things are, when things become evil, they take things that are good and they twist them. They're manipulated or they're twisted. You know, eating is a good thing, but eating in a disordered way becomes an evil. Drinking is a good thing, but becoming intoxicated is taking something that's very good and then abusing that, all right? Marriage and our human sexuality is a very good thing. And everyone gets this idea, well, the church is anti-sex. Not at all. The church is the only one that says it is beautiful. It is so beautiful. It is holy and it is sacred. But then the world doesn't want to hear that. No, it's just pleasure. It's fun. It's animalistic and that type. And so you end up just degrading people. And they lose the true genuine meaning and the beauty of what that is supposed to be. A man and a woman coming together open to new life. Nothing could be more beautiful than that on a natural level. So much that Jesus elevated that to the sacrament. And yet look how that is just being debased and degraded. And that's why I think behind all this is the father of lies. I think it's the devil because the devil hates the flesh. He hates the incarnation and the elevation. And so he loves to get in there and really degrade that and debase that and frustrate the beauty for which that act was made. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. Okay. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.